Julia Block and Kalela Williams. Kalela Williams is going to go first. She's a fiction writer whose most recent work appears in Calyx, a journal of art and literature by women, and Drunken Boat. She's currently working on a novel and also directs one book on Philadelphia, a free library of Philadelphia program with the goal of promoting citywide conversation around the themes in a single book. Here to tell us more and read some of her work, Kalala Williams. where you get a little bit confused, don't worry about it. It's fine, it all makes sense in the end, but it won't, but, but yeah, don't worry about it. Um, so just, yeah, and again, if something doesn't make sense, just, you know, deal with it, you'll, you'll live. Um, so this is a story called, Does, Does This Outfit Make Me Look Racist? Um, and I chose this story because that um, there's a quirky character who sort of has some, he's, he's just, he doesn't really know how to interact with people, and it sort of reminded me, as I was looking back over the story, he reminded me a lot of Christopher Boone. Okay, does this outfit look, make me look racist? I couldn't be certain. Who knows what happened? If, who knows what would have happened if I didn't jump in? But I think Greg was about to get his ass whipped. He was yelling at two black guys, he'd drawn a crowd, and I should add that he was in costume. A purple coat with rows of shiny gold buttons, a long gold vest and fancy fabric, breeches and white tights. His hair was pulled back in a low ponytail tied with a ribbon. Kids crisscrossing the quad lingered to watch. Girls strolling past stopped their conversations while guys rolling by on skateboards came to a halt. He was shouting, but I wasn't saying that. I was simply explaining that Thomas Jefferson's view of slavery was much more nuanced. Look, I got it about Thomas Jefferson's view on slavery. I've read that, one guy with cornrows yelled back. But you need to be careful about what you say about slavery being justified. In the context of Jefferson's time, Greg was screechy, and he treated his slaves kindly. He treated some of his slaves like family. I bet he did, especially since some of his slaves were family, the other dude argued. Hey, hey, what's going on? I finally reached them, positioning myself between my half-brother and the two guys, and I tried to sound casual. The black guys both appraised me, a man in his late 30s, way too old to be a college student, trying to figure out where I fit in. Everything's fine, the corn, grow, the corn road guy said. We're just trying to school Captain Crunch here. The crowd snickered as Greg's face flooded red. So what, now it's a personal attack? Really? Well, you'd be interested in this. You should know that um, you should know what I spent weekends doing when I was in high school like the kids in that assembly. I was going, going door to door campaigning for Obama. I seriously wanted to punch Greg in the face for busting out with something so stupid. Yeah, Dad, I wanted to say into the sky, this is what you got for sending Greg to Wilford Academy. This is what you paid 30 grand a year for. And something else? I know all about Thomas Jefferson's slaves being family because my brother and I, Greg motioned to me, we're related to Thomas Jefferson through the black side of the family. That's right, I'm related to Sally Hemings. I'm her great, 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 great grandson. So I'm part black. Now is my time to grab Greg's arm. Let's go, I muttered. Wait, let me finish telling them. He jabbed a finger into the air. Martha Jefferson's father, John Wales, shut the fuck up, I tightened my grip. We're leaving right now. I should add there's language in this story. Um, so we learned that Greg was at a uh, prep assembly. That's what he was, he does a thing where he like impersonates Thomas Jefferson or he calls it interprets. It's a big difference. Um, they go to Monticello, they meet with histori with a historian because Greg is convinced that he's related to Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, et cetera, et cetera. And then they do end up doing one of those over-the-counter DNA tests. Sort of like a pregnancy test, but it's like a DNA test. Um, <laughs> before Dad's funeral, I hadn't seen Greg, my half-sister Megan, or my stepmother Jillian in six years. 
I sat in the front pew opposite from Jillian and the kids with my mother and Sylvia. Before the service began, my sister looked pointedly at Megan's tight black dress and stiletto heels whispering, really, she's wearing that? What is this, a pimp and hoe party? Your father's whole life was a pimp and hoe party, mom remarked under her breath. Look at Jillian, it's a funeral for Christ's sakes and she's got on a push-up bra. Right, it's a funeral, mom. Patting her knee, I glanced around, hoping no one heard us, and I tried to focus on my father, the man of the hour, a stranger in that open casket. I looked behind me to watch Carlin slide into a back pew. Throughout the service, I found myself missing her, not dad. Okay, so we learned Phil never knew his dad, his dad blah, 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 he never knew his half-siblings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we also know that there's somebody else uh, in Phil's life, sort of in his life, named Blake. She will come up later. At the interment, I paced down the gravel drive that wound through the cemetery. A light hand touched my elbow. It was Jillian, wet-eyed, tugging gently at the shawl, half-concealing the hint of cleavage that Mom found so scandalous. She hugged me hard. Her arm still wrapped around me. She said, it breaks my heart what Greg's going through. He and your father were so close. I feel like he's lost. We both looked at Greg, a tall, pale figure in a black suit, wandering ghost-like among the gravestones. Every few moments, he'd stop and study a tombstone, then furiously type on his iPad, as if reading my mind, which was wondering, what the hell is he doing? Jillian explained, he's gotten into genealogy. Your father told me that he's got generations buried here. She touched my arm. You'll spend time with him, right? You, you won't mind if he visits you some weekends, right? And so that's how it started, my hanging out with Greg, and my suspicions that he was the weirdest kid ever were solidly confirmed. We played historical video games, they make those. He tried to get me into family history, showing me this elaborate family tree. We went on trips to obscure battlefields where he'd dramatically say things like, these fields were once washed in blood. He showed me all of his pictures. There was him dressed as a Revolutionary War soldier, as a young Ben Franklin. I marveled. Greg would have gotten his ass handed to him the first day of freshman year if he went to my high school in Richmond. Who makes these outfits for you, I wanted to know. Mom, and they're not outfits, you know. And Dad was okay with this stuff? Yeah, he likes Greg Swallow. He liked that I'm into history. He was proud of me. Fast forward, Greg is going to impersonate uh, someone. He's, he's doing an impersonation at an African-American Heritage Festival, which freaks his brother out, and so he goes to save Greg from himself. Greg, there is language. There's more language. Um, just bear with me. Greg clotted towards me in thin leather shoes, attracting stares. He was wearing faded brown breeches, torn white stockings, and a blouse-like thing made of coarse white fabric. Are you Thomas Jefferson dressed down? I asked. When's your presentation? It's in ten minutes to a youth group. And there's not going to be any gaffes like last time, right? Oh, come on. You mean UVA? That wasn't a gaffe. Greg took off his battered straw hat, pulling at his hair. Inexplicably, it was braided into cornrows. What the fuck, Greg? Who did that? Oh, oh, this girl in my dorm who lives in my dorm. They're kind of tight, though. They hurt. Wait, who exactly are you supposed to be interpreting? I'm an enslaved field hand. Who do you think? He pulled his hat back on. But this is how I'm going to talk. He cleared his throat. Name's Jupiter, and I is one of Marsh Jefferson's field hands. I was taken aback. Holy shit, Greg, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Dropping the dialect, Greg said, I've studied a lot of WPA narratives. Granted, they're almost certainly skewed by their transcribers' prejudices, and even if they aren't, they represent the 19th century, not just the 18th. But I have reason to believe, I have reason to believe you need to keep your goddamn mouth shut. A brown-skinned woman in a white dress hurried towards us, clutching a clipboard. You must be the reenactor? She eyed Greg up and down. I am. Greg Whitaker, portraying the enslaved worker Jupiter, he said. I didn't expect, well, 
The school group is here. She nodded towards a group of babbling middle schoolers being herded across the field by their teachers. They're early. Are you ready to present? My brother assured her that he was at the same time that I said, Greg, don't fucking do this. Sir, I'm going to ask that you watch your language around these minors. My face reddened as about 40 kids tromped towards us. Greg and I were the only white faces for yards. But no, we weren't. Not 10 feet away, standing in a jewelry booth, was Carlin. Of course she stopped by. Any event that promised reenactors guaranteed her attendance. My brother, who had never officially met her, recognized her. You were at my father's funeral. He strode right up to her. I'm Greg Whitaker. I'm Carlin, Phil's ex-wife, she added. Well, he's almost ex. But Greg knew that part, that Carlin and I aren't married, but that we are. Just like how Greg and I are brothers, but we aren't. Then there was what Greg didn't know, that I'm a father, although I'm not. I dated a leasing agent at an apartment complex I used to manage in Maryland. I was her boss. When she told me she was pregnant, we talked about moving in together after the baby was born, even though the thought scared the shit out of both of us. But I was okay with it, you know? Life happens. Then something changed. She quit her job at the complex and moved to Minnesota to live with her parents. She wanted nothing to do with me. It's been that way ever since. I never thought it. She's married now. Blake has a new daddy, or just a daddy, since I've never been one. Either way, I never told anyone, never, not until Carlin and I got serious about having kids ourselves, and it weighed on me. I knew she'd feel betrayed, but not enough to leave me. It's not that you're a father, she'd screamed over and over. It's that you never told me. Greg explained, I'm portraying Jupiter, one of Thomas Jefferson's enslaved workers, so I'm dressed like an 18th century slave, except many field hands wouldn't have worn shoes in warm weather. Most slaves got only one pair every few years, so they didn't want to wear them out quickly. Right, Carlin said. I shot her a look, meaning an apology with it. He tugged at the corners of his blousy-looking top. In this shirt, these breeches, they're made of, they're made of Ostisburg. It was an inexpensive cloth and usually made at home, and the slaves were given this to wear. People back then called it nigger cloth. Greg, shut up. Flushing, I looked around. The kids were noisily getting settled down, sitting in the grass, laughing, talking, complaining, with their teachers far too stressed out to pay attention to us. I'm using the word in context. Will you be quiet? I gestured to him. You can't do this. You shouldn't be wearing this, this outfit. Outfit? You make it sound like I bought this at the Gap. It's historical clothing. It's what people wear. It's what they had to wear. I'm not saying it's inaccurate. I'm just saying Greg interrupted me. What? Does this outfit make me look racist? Is that what you think? Because I'm not mocking anyone, Phil. Because you're part black? No, his jaw twitched. Because I take t history too seriously to make light of it. Carlin folded her necklace. Greg muttered, besides, I got the results back from our test. There's no way I'm a descendant of Thomas Jefferson through the Hemings line. I have no DNA markers consistent with sub-Saharan African ancestry, so I can't be. I'm all Western and Eastern European, every drop, 100% white. I didn't know what to say. Greg had been building an identity. He wanted to be someone he wasn't. Hey, I'm sorry. It's fine. But for all we know, you could still be a descendant of Thomas Jefferson. What do you mean? It's possible. You're of 7% sub-Saharan ancestry. I am? I couldn't help looking at, down at my skin. I could see my veins underneath. My knuckles were pink. I didn't look any black. But I was. Some? Must be from your mother's side. I have the results. No, no, I believe you. Why did this matter at all? It shouldn't, right? The kids were settled into some semblance of quiet, and Greg wasted no time striding over to the group. Rather than stand, he lowered himself onto the balls of his feet, eye level with them. Afternoon, y'all, he boomed. I cringed. I'm just, I just pausing here a spell before I get back to work, but I reckon I'll sit and talk if you care to listen. Name's Jupiter, and I is one of Marsh Jefferson's field hands. Y'all know who Marsh Jefferson is? Thomas Jefferson? A bright-eyed, poofy-haired girl asked. 
That's what the white folks call them, Greg said. But you're white, the girl stared at him. <laughs> if I is, wish somebody would tell them folks what on me, Greg, mm -hmm. Jupiter, said. He was beginning to sound almost convincing. Maybe I wouldn't have to work so hard. The kids chuckled dryly, a funny, not funny laugh. They shifted, leaned back onto their palms, propped their chins up with their hands, elbows relaxing against bent knees. They were believing him. Their teachers, three of them, stood in the back, arms folded, eyebrows raised at attention. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Kathy and the PPQ crew. Can't wait to read the new issue. Kicking it. Um, yeah, I read the book, and uh, I liked it. <laughs> there's a page, um, there's a sentence somewhere in the book that says, I realized there was nothing I could do which felt safe. And that kind of hit me. So I just picked um, poems that I wrote, uh, like that I thought were in conversation with the book in some way. This poem is called Poem Written in an Airport. Either you put the paper clip on or the pen will bleed red. Either I look out the window or write the best poem of my life. Either the tape will stick or the leaves will remain until winter. Either the photos will make you cry, or you will call an old friend in California. Either the aloe will soothe your skin, or you will be back in grade school. Either the song will go on into night, or you will wake up without music. The second poem is something I wrote in the past year. Where in the great glare was I? Under the sun, I saw two kids along a fence walking, and then a fast, and then fast to a cut, and then we were all. Hmm. Where in the great glare was I? Under the sun, I saw two kids along a fence walking, and then fast to a cut, and then we all were gone. I saw an empty delivery truck with its back open and it's and it sped away twice in the same day. There was a side field under the sun and I could see that the grass was wet and dense with some night still in it. It had to be freshly cut, but there were no mowers or municipal ground crews anywhere. A field in my nose and even now not a soul to share it. On the edge of Chinatown older couple had just found a bench. They sat closely and looked straight ahead. One or the other patted on the top of the other's hand. I saw that the secret source of light appeared from a brick pavement stained with white at the edges. I saw a splash of little suns scatter and then restation themselves in the air, light speaking to light in the, eye, in the eyes, in the eyes of a pair of sunglasses. This is my book called Runaway Go-Kart, and the last poem in the book is sort of a poem I wrote in conversation or thinking about my sister. It took me like forever to write the poem, for, like 20 years. There's a guy in the city, his name's George Calloway. You sometimes see him at Reading Terminal. He used to hang out at 30th Street Station. 
We got kicked out of there. You know, George? Could be two books? Yeah, maybe. Two headsets He's usually listening to headsets. He knows my sister. He, he lives uh, in assisted living, and uh, he knows Colleen. And one day he saw me, and he says, Tom, what? I said, I have to talk to you. He said, your sister, Colleen. He said, what? He said, she never, she never talks to me. And, and I'm like, for, for all these years, she never says anything to me. And I don't think that she likes me. And I said, George, she doesn't talk to anybody. She doesn't speak. She's like, yeah, she's very non-communicative. I said, it's not you, George. She doesn't speak. Um, anyway, this is my poem that I wrote uh, thinking about her. And one of the things that I realized is that out of love, you can write with straight fury. It's kind of a sibling poem. And I also, one of the nicknames that we have for each other, um, my family, is Bean, B-E-A-N, so that word comes up. Things we strain together. F familiar as a weeknight and as maddening. You keep on your way, your erratic way, hungrily, fingered by you in your relationship to God, sister. It is not true you will never tell what you know. I couldn't explain it to anyone. Aware of a snag, a fiber on your hand. You stop, keep the edge, the last click for now. One striped orange handbag full of beads. So many shoelaces, a hatchery, those clicking beads. Colorful hoard, your private stash and treasure. Pointing in the doorway, you fake, your face hurt them. No, no, there's nothing out there. You only want, you only want what you wanted, and there was no reason not to pitch a fit. Before you stormed off, I wanted you to look at me. Before I stormed off, thoughts rankled me. When it comes to being furious, maybe or even, your face is kind of tough, fair, defiant. You look Irish bit of South Orange, that New Jersey brusque, heart of amber, heart of spunk. Do you invent me as much as I invent you? I know we can lock in. I know we can again. We cannot know each other, but we have a thread. Share the humid September, an ordinary dream. God comes to see us without a bell and no need to say goodbye. From a sudden hunger, you step away. Jangle, follow your nose, your breath, our handheld heads. You've had a few jobs, my favorite unwrapping bubble gum that never sold. Each day they cart away the old chewing gum, then mix it all together again, like new. Did you cut into the profits? Are you chewing some right now? I love when we listen to music and you want to dance. When you dance, don't want to dance with anyone else, except maybe Tommy Bamford, Gina Cachillo. Just not with me. Your main move is leg to leg. You get going. It's remarkable. You plant your feet. Then you don't move at all. You sway. Sometimes you kick. Sometimes you spin. Once. When you clap your hands, you laugh. Peel off. Done. By now, I think I know what you're going to do. But don't. But you're predictable as anyone. You'd rather stay in. You'd rather not swim. Bowling is for suckers, but fun to hang out. Do you dance less now? Sometimes you fake tears. And so, 
So I know. And so, we are stubborn. We resent showing our hand. We can't help it. Another bag, she always has these bags she's carrying around. You hold the string and beads and shake. It is not manic, it is not voodoo, not superstitious. All sorts of clicks, or is it only one click? Wood block on wood, wood that listens. Late night TV, darkness. There's a way I heard us say, Tommy and Colleen, our names, our household names. Each day we say is another way, that's each day's way. We can only set people right, we can only set people right. A show with no budget, no voiceovers, and elliptical. That's not an, even an idea for a show. We sit, look out the window, look back in, pay per view. The night won't pass. Lonely me, lonely you. Dusk never comes. We're a sleeper hit. And this is the ending part. You know exactly what you like, bold bean. Right back to put it on yourself. Shake out your quilt, waving it over your laughter. You'll push me away. Later, check to see if everyone's home. I wonder what you think when I'm not here, or how much you think of me at all. Your footsteps through the sleeping house, putting everything in its place, or place you find. The next day's search for your night's work, wallets, shoes, stack of bills, all moved elsewhere. Mom, Grandma, and Aunt Sharon, all have dreams where you talk to them. I, too, look for your language, though I fear what you probably say we wouldn't want to hear, as I say nothing here of sex or all the words we've put into your mouth. To me, you say nothing, and I write it down as fast as I can. overhead lighting won't stick to anything. It's up to you to buy your own lamp. I pray for General Gridlock. Never a rest from the rest. My retired grandmom says she doesn't get any days off anymore. Behind the scenes, under the ocean, the movie, the felon, the telephone call, the rest and the west, and the west to the rest. After five months of no questions, after three days without any questions, the question on everyone's mind, the one no one's asked and is remaining, the Groucho Marx question, the race question, what's for dinner, who's the winner? This is the answer, not the answer. All day, my upper whisker lip has been channeling the energy of a patch of tiny petal flowers. I won't shave them. I can't tell where they're from. Don't know how long they have been there. I also haven't been listening to my left leg. It walks away from me when I walk. A man told me there's a cure for what I have in the fly kingdom. How many other things have I been unable to hear? My wife left me for shopping. My husband doesn't know what he does, so he doesn't know who he is. Don't tell me we should talk about it. He loved that shitty job, and I loved him enough not to ask. This blues and a page and a half of hearsay. Leave your drinks half empty at the bar. Spinning, looming, weaving, a widely felt appreciation for texture. Link was in the house on his red rubber seat, listening to headphones, 
reading a magazine, thought, finger wagging, pointing on his t-shirt. I can't believe, I can't, can't believe the way you acted today. He was over it, but couldn't get the same emphasis. So he turned it into a song, a woolly song. Drop ceiling, light and dirty as air. As soon as you walk into the room and could think, you thought, how fast can you get it down? One way in, one way out, head poked up into the dark, dusty space. Lights built into the mix, inexplicable wires amid the buckle woodwork. Work. Trashed as it is, you work towards the ceiling, holding the ceiling, wreckage all the way up. Persimmons to eat and wear as jewelry, something that everybody here will like. Persimmons to eat and wear as jewelry. Bell pushers, leaf rakers, stump bunnies, ta tavern goers, pebble smokers, and clowns. Stop all the hair pulling. It was true what they always said. They were, quote, down with the sickness, but so were we. And there's just two more. Hulkies. All the ninjas seem to be landing here. They must be on break. You realize, you realize, you realize there's something. It's about time we hear the story of the lucky duck, my lucky duck. Great schemes crashing, kid, kid, kid. There's trouble when the old slow furies start their laughing. There's trouble, and there's trouble, and there's the old slow furies. The gall of the pretend hero eating 28 chicken tacos. Before the short story class, you never knew that ain't right. It ain't, and 28 less tacos in the world. Somehow, the, sink, the string section makes sense. The occupying ninjas like a house full of cats. They must live here now. The film runs along, and the furies old and slow. Jesus Christ, they still got it. School is out, time for a love story. Your best friend says it plain, says she can make you happy. There's no leap, nothing will blow these lines. Kids keep saying regret, regret. Makes me want to, what? Makes me want to write a song. Don't look up, extra large in kindness kind of oversizedness. Can't get enough of your crazy love. Blue sky, so blue, so big, so blue, blue, blue. Boy, don't fit the description, even at night. At the spangled blue surrounding the car frames your frame, totally cheap frames. Everything else blown away. Roll down, roll down your window. Yeah, I've been there, there ain't nothing there. Now where are you? Can't hear a thing in the wind. Now where are you? Now where? Fury. I'm just going to end. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, thank you Paul, and thank you um, to the Pen and Pencil Club. Thank you, Dry Quarterly. Thank you so much. Um, so, I write in my work a lot about um, listening, recognizing, misunderstanding. And so, Maybe my connection to the book is a little bleak for the beating. So, first, I'm going to read a couple poems from People Are Tiny. I have a poem. I don't know if anybody in here is the kind of person who always gets stopped uh, for directions. <laughs> or, um, you know, you stand in line. 
and I had a friend who was always, always, always asked um, where things were, and so this is uh, a poem about that. But he wasn't French, but we thought it would be funny to pretend he was French. <coughs> a Frenchman comes out of the crowd. Someone has decided to send me strangers. Where's the stadium, they ask? Where's home? Where is this place I can never tell them about? I believe in myself. I walk down the road. All my life, I'm the one people stop to ask for directions. I walk with four friends down the avenue. A car will stop and a hand point from its window. Hey, indicating me specifically. Where's the right aid? I reply, I do not speak a word of English. <laughs> the small buttered potato in French means a picture so different from French fries. More like a garden fat with potato leaves. They ask me for help when I myself am lost in a crowd. The sun sets. They ask about a place rarely French, rarely in my French pants. But my mouth is like a cold French wait for the bus. And even this miracle, you understanding me, even though I only speak French, is so French. <laughs> for I have an office in French. I have a lake over the French. I am an agnostic who believes in the French. <laughs> um, I think everyone's probably seen at the beginning of a Paramount movie, or at least back in the day where they um, show the mountain and then the stars come over it. And I don't really know how this happened, but I was on the internet and I ended up on a chat room with um, hiking and artists on Raju. Ripped in crevasses under blue disguises, the mountaineers all shrink like ants. They sprinkle black pepper across white. Back home they argue the person who drew the mountain ring by stars tacked to movies was drawing out a figment. An argument went that it came from a mind, but that it was mount made up from the bogus range, and one person said, actually, it's artisan watching. There was a free element of wanting to be correct, lapsing like time. Another person claimed it was an image of his mountain in Switzerland distorted. Another person claimed it's the east face of artisan Raju without proof. An endless line of crampon marks Claiming it was a memory. No, it's Mount Ben Lamont. No, I climbed where the sun throws rays down hard. No, the mines, a white negligee frozen over everything. No pigment ferments. A conglomeration of Utah and mind enlarging the chance of not meeting actual earth. A horse. The phrase a horse sounds green to the blunt intention of the actual. Artisan Raju. Congruent to what? She says, yes, Trillium is like morning glories, but with three long leaves, much better colors. Not so biological, I see. She pictures rolling hills, crocuses, and apple blossoms swooning perfume. I say, no, your brain is parsing that beauty. 
more like huge mountains or vistas of the sea, so blunt or featureless, they are terrifying. That's the sublime. Fear of the unknown, all that water making you feel small. But how can a waterfall make you afraid, she asks. <coughs> like, you look into a canyon and a handful of pearls drop through your chest, I say. She blinks. I spread my arms out. Extreme love when you're scared by how much you love someone. She says, I've not experienced that yet. So I go retrograde or long as in an involved classroom discussion to explain fear of the sublime to the girl who missed weeks because her doctor misdiagnosed her with cancer. with no phone. <laughs> the clams dead inside their shells. What other wind grieved beach next to me while everything slows? The Gulf Stream itself petering out and no one seems to say so but stewardesses. It was when we all had our hands over our ears battling, I can't hear you, I can't hear you, I can't hear you, and each declaring they were taking a break. The moon was full when I slept on the beach near horses. It was quarter moon when I got to my mom's. A new moon four days in helped me get things done. There was nothing to press against my real thoughts all day. Suddenly, I could feel that the moment was partly full of you, your presence, that maybe you had been there all this time. As when Cherise said, Telling the truth got her morally grounded. It permitted her to see into the other world. She looked at behind me at lunch and said, someone is with you. Sharp scissors or muddled waters. You said, I can't reel my fishing dad until I finish this cookie. The unmistakable feeling that you are about to say something necessary in his petals. Why do we name monsters in admonishment? They are both warnings. Even if the finish, the cookie remark, what I recall is something you said long before I met you. Told to me secondhand in the living room. Your thing for luxury. There in the dream, I threw lumber in a heap away from the barn I have never been to. I ran through an enormous field of already cut wheat seeds, golden sift, as in the mood of your words, and suddenly realized I should not be wearing shoes. I took a hot shower in an Italian mansion with expensive soaps and herbs and my winter coat on. What's the point, I said. But peacefully, that's how we built libraries when we were kids, makeshift books from blue line paper. How I rode a horse who puffed himself out so that his saddle would be loose and his rider slide on the coffee tree asphodel path. Taking care of the people who love you as much as you love them feels like never a grain of grit or breath. I fixed mom elderly dinner, plain broiled salmon, boiled potatoes, and broccoli no longer emerald. I can feel you see the lank broccoli and say, it's so dull, what is this, 1989? Mom knows when I am there, but usually forgets that I have been there after I leave. I can't recall 
a single specific thing, foods, clouds, the cat, I reflexively thought I should take pictures of before I remembered I don't have a phone. I want to talk to my friend and I never will again. Sliding. Maple and tulip and coffee leaves overhead, logs and creeks saddle sagging towards one side from the minute we left the barn. I was sliding off. Nature plays a trick in the form of a smart-ass horse, and so the whole time he struts, you hold on tight, prepare, the moment you'll separate. Even with the repaired phone, the sense of inner moods, of enjoying a jot of sage, a place for not knowing, for a friend behind us, notation of a mind's lightning. I thought I'd read a, a few poems um, about uh, outsiderness. I was diagnosed with a kind of uh, depression at 19. And uh, I, I wrote this series of this, this trilogy of uh, prose poems, and I'll just read the, the first one. It's trying to kind of capture what, what it's like to have starting to spiral into it. Uh, Boulevard Trilogy, part one, how Boulevard, Boulevard lost his mind. Boulevard was tired of all the slow birds in his brain, the awkward leaden ones with lazy plumage and ponderous toes. They were rude, painful, and fat. They had little eyes. Their sloppy tongues lapped them up in a noxious drool. So one day, he swatted one to the corner and replaced it with a quick and lovely swallow. How it flit and soared and seemed to be many places at one time. The swallow danced and dove with its mouth open, taking into, into its little belly whole throatfuls of his mind's sky. It lived on the swaths of heaven left blank by the torpid bird, which Boulevard thought he had rid himself of. They say the sky will double at least once during a man's lifetime. And so it did in Boulevard's head. But turgid birds came three by three, and then some to fling themselves about. So he swatted them away too. To fill the aching gaps of heaven, he invited another swallow, then two, then three, their flashy undersides a dazzle and distraction, then nuthatch, then murder birds, then uncountable dozens more. This is how he thought he'd save himself. But soon enough, his whole brain had become a madness of wings, a squeaky, starling racket, grackles darkening him to a translucent blue, pigeons fucking on the rooftops, maimed gray swans, and those first swift birds still slamming themselves against cranial walls until his skull filled up. And this is how Boulevard laid down his head, all heavy with pretty corpses and the dread. Impressive episode back in 2005, towards the end of 2005. And maybe right before that, um, I was dating this woman, she broke up with me, so I thought I would just go to Argentina. <laughs> I rented an apartment in Argentina for a month. Now, I grew up speaking English in our house, and Filipino, but both me and my dad speak Spanish pretty fluently. Um, um, 
I kind of just learned it from friends and and um, studying in high school. And when I went down uh, Buenos Aires, um, I was down there for a few days. I said, you know, I better I better call home just to let my dad know that I'm that I'm okay down here now. Me and my dad don't get along so well. Uh, matter of fact, we're estranged again since his, I went to go visit him on his 88th birthday back in October. And, um, that was the first time that I'd seen him in like three years and I actually don't know when I'm gonna see him again. Anyway, um, this time down in Argentina when I called him up, almost as a joke, I just started to speak to him in Spanish, you know? And, my dad answered me in Spanish, and we had never spoken to one another in Spanish before. And one of the things that I realized after I hung up the phone was that this is, this is a language that my father and I had never been angry at one another. Um, so that's a, this poem is about that, it's prompted by that. As Glass. When the sons of Buenos Aires holler in chorus from the muck-blessed soccer field across the street. They're calling to me in the formal idioms their fathers use to ignore the ubiquitous feral dogs and the beggars of Recoleta. I understand just enough to fling back halfway to the park's paved border their summer-toughened leather ball and return to my hard-floor Palermo flat to phone my dad back in Jersey. Papa, I say. Of course, at first, he doesn't recognize my voice or even his own name. For I am speaking to him with an affection whose prepositions point in all the wrong directions. But for six full minutes, we are unfamiliar with one another's rage. <coughs> For once, we are laughing at the same time. It's simple. We don't loathe one another in Spanish like we do in English. A language I've long known for its fluid burn. The way it rises from my father's ankles into his belly, from his torso into his limbs like molten glass. This is why he and I can glare at one another for decades without moving. All the lexicons of sadness and delight turning cold and hard about every muscle and bone, twisting around the capillaries, flooding the metacarpal nooks, stopping in the esophagus. So if flesh, sinew, and gut, this human crucible were to fall away as it must. What's left is the clear anatomy of a man cast in language, unsummoned for 77 years. The whittled wooden fans of his hot childhood, his mother's calessa rocking over vegan cobblestone, a whore's warm breast flushed against him like a good bottle of rum, cracked cathedral windows, some cots and soup, and all 400 years of horse shit poured hot through his veins. And I, I am there too, sitting in a chilly apartment in Palermo, listening to the fading howls from the football field 
the bold charity of a foreign tongue sweetening the image in my mind of this quickly aging man who whacked me and my brother silly with his leather belt. And down the street, I could still hear those boys teasing one another in Lunfardo. Maybe they're not too young to despise their fathers. Maybe they can already taste in the prayers they pretend to say before they sleep that petty venom distilling in their mouths, but not today. Not in this Castilian, for today, this speech of imperial thieves, this dialect of conquerors, this larcenist parlance, I am taking back as my own. And every word of every tenderness I have failed to speak is already rising through my knees as glass. It is ancient and it is pure. It is not free of bitterness or grief. It is heating my very fingers as I write this. I want to learn to love more fluently, even if it means in English I should shatter into the body of my father. Love poem. <laughs> 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 Should I read a heartbreak poem? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was engaged uh, a bunch of years ago. It didn't work out. But the, I, uh, the woman I was engaged to, I love very, very much. We were friends a long time before before we got together, and it was just like this weird thing. I didn't want to mess up the friendship and. I turned to my buddy Rod and I was like, oh my God, man, I'm catching feelings from Elisa. And he's like giving me advice. We're sitting at the bar getting drunk. And, and, I, and, I, and he's like, what's her name? He's like, he's like, and I'm like, Melissa, Melissa Piano. He's like, dog. <laughs> her last name is Piano. <laughs> you got to write a poem about that. <laughs> I also... Um, I was lucky enough to study with some pretty great jazz musicians. Um, Adegoke, Steve Coulson, who was one of the original members of AACM, and Chris White, who was a bassist for Nina Simone and Dizzy Gillespie, um, who passed away a couple of years ago. They were great teachers of mine. Um, I, there was at one point I thought I was going to be a pretty serious jazz pianist. So there are the references in here. Um, a tradition of pianos. From Elisa Piano. I've sat at spinets, toys, consoles, and uprights, banged through ballads, blues, and pop on a Bosendorfer, even jammed drunk in A minor on a concert grand with Max Roach comping behind me. That's actually true, I jammed with Max Roach. <laughs> you know, some pianos are beautiful by themselves in the corner of a room with big light and a chandelier above, but the sight of such an instrument is meant to draw you in. It's very silence and invitation. Its strings bear, did you know this, 20 tons of force to keep them taut so that just one meager human body bent to the keys can shake a whole goddamn concert hall with, I'll say it, love. 
The swelled tonnage of air becoming brisk, electric, old beat-up players too with their stinky scrolls and sticky ivories yellowed. They don't turn me back. I'd like to touch them, to hear their honky-tonk shrill like a voice famished into nothing but a thirst for a shadow rum. And I don't mean one must suffer in order to make great art, only that we all, at one time or another, suffer terribly anyway. So we have music, my sweet girl. I wanted to write a poem about you. And all I could think of was your name. All the stories asleep inside it, the way a piano holds so many notes and each note itself a choir, silent until the choir's touched. And my God, how whole crowds move when they move. I've seen it, grand ballrooms <coughs> bounding and body rock basements crowded with couples sweating muzzle to muzzle to some playful son martillo swing. It happens. Remember the night on Chelsea docks with the how the docks swayed beneath us dancing and you clapped so hard and so long you broke your watch and woke with both wrists bruised we laughed at that this this is what music can do can let all the love out of us fearlessly and we can boogie down or kiss I mean, how many behemoths of loneliness have been tamed with how little music? You don't know this, but at the Blue Note, the night Amel LaRue's daughter Sky climbed onto that eight-foot Steinway and seemed to call up from that box full of hammers every flawed song, every reckoned sum of jubilance, rage, and rapture. This child, this mother and slender child rejoicing, a whole bloodline's voice in toil rejoicing, me, you, that night was the hundredth I imagined kissing you along your shoulder, and the hundred first I said nothing. Think, Melissa, of all the secrets between us, and think of all the clandestine joys in the wood of one piano. Consider the men who chop its spruce and maple down. Think of whom those men must sometimes fail to love with all their might when they go home, battered and tired. Think of the truckers who had the wall the wood for miles by rig to the those quirky piano makers who conjure math and the devils of pig iron to engineer some beast-scaled hunk, some apparatus that, played with both precision and weight, falls only infinitesimally short of holy. And think of all the unsaid bliss inside of you and me, stored up for so many generations before us, centuries of strange folk with our same hands, cuddling in the dark, hiding from each other's promises of adoration. Go on, close your eyes to me, but trust. Art Tatum sought out pianos mostly out of tune, or whose keys didn't all work to test what good sound he could coax from their partial ruin. What does it mean that Lenny Tristano, son of Italian immigrants, invented a style whose chords are lush harmonic clusters, the wrists moving in close parallel motion up and down the keyboard? Who called that style locked 
hands. So Shearing stole it, and Milt Buckner and Oscar Peterson perfected it. I've known you these few years, but it seems I've been listening to the history of pianos my whole life now. Bobby Timmons, Phineas Newborn Jr., Monk, these are my heroes, and I know Miles, for example, talk shit about McCoy. But the summer of 1988, on the bedroom floor, I rigged a turntable straight with no preamp and knelt to the speaker with my favorite things playing over and over, and I'd pop up to run between the hot, cramped wreck of a space and the brown bald one in the living room until I finally doubled over on the stairs and surrendered. I would never play like that. If a piano can make a part-time petty thug weep, what will it do to a full-grown man with no better sense than to profess his affections to a woman who reminds him of all the gorgeous music that has filled him up for good. All I know is there is a machine in the world upon which I've placed my fingers countless times. A contraption whose bulk is like God's one good fist, which sometimes opens to reveal four centuries worth of solitude. If one day you and I should call each other love, and you wake to find me in the next room, leaned into the piano, as though looking into a deep living pond, don't be scared to sit quietly beside me. I'm just listening, as now, for the countless instances of touch lost in all the years of your name. I'm in there. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, so I didn't get a chance to reread this book um, for one, one Philadelphia, but I actually have a super visceral memory of the time that I did read it, which might, might have actually been when it came out. Is that possible? When did it come out? Yeah. So, um, like, I remember the bus stop I was standing at, waiting for the trolley. I think I was waiting for either the bus or the streetcar at 9th and Irving in San Francisco. And I, I, like, remember how I felt, and I remember, like, the texture of the air on my skin. And, um, and I remember all those feelings about the book, even though, even if I don't necessarily remember, like, the particulars of the book, which is a nice thing about books, I think, is that we, we can often remember the world that surrounded us uh, when we read a book. So I just, I wanted to open it up to a line that struck me, and um, and this is that line on page 114. Um, but it didn't hurt when he touched me like it normally does. I could see him touching me like I was watching a film of what was happening in the room, but I could hardly feel his, feel his hand at all. It was just like the wind blowing against me. Um, and I like how this book is thinking about the relationships between people and kind of different ways of noticing how we relate to each other. And so I thought I'd read a few poems from Valley Fever that are also thinking about that question of how we relate to each other. It's a book that came out of um, a couple years that I spent commuting from Los Angeles into the Central Valley of California, this really intense kind of blasted landscape. Extremely, it's, the, it's the worst air quality in the country, um, and yet it's a, a region with some really amazing human beings doing amazing work. Um, so there's a section in the book um, 
where there are these kind of abbreviated sonnets that take their titles from various different towns in that area that I visited during those two years. And it begins sort of the northern end of the Central Valley, which is where I grew up. The Sacramento of Desire. I left before the makeover ended because the radio in my rented red focus would not seek properly. Like the song says, me, I play for fortunes. Sacramento at night is filled with squares of exhausted air that collect the day's stunted effects. You with your shoes plucked from over-aerated parking lots of desire. I with my unencumbered hair, vague figures making a high sound, trying to believe their luck. Bluish variations in cloud movements seem to function as signs of an end. I know the structure of what I want to say, but not which fibers, natural or technical. Bakersfield. Oil pump in a field of lettuce. A body repeated and punched through paper. A woolly palm face up to a road dry as winter. Astigmatism sinking into valley. Stop trying to make it happen. Strathmore. Red light followed by white light, sun turning to snow in the mouth, new moisture in the vegetables, dry docking the encounter, wives, an idea of the other one, one window after the other one. Airports are good places to cry. Cash for passengers. The body will always be a young punctuation device. To Larry. Stone slab on the midriff broken and self-crushed fabric on the ice, a metal wing in flames. This is all happening right here in the parking lot, anatomically. Too much space between the objects, stories, speech, a concrete floor, which is also a road, and then the dress, also breaking. This is all happening while fields move toward you in increments against a weird liquid sort of thinking about movement. In flight, ideas get armed. Juncture turns over in the mind before the places where things meet up in the air <coughs> Porterville. Granite lining base of the hill, seam of the car glinting off seam of the hill and going very fast. Valley as prison, valley as door. Each exit is a lie, yet you have to exit. Each exit comes hung low with thick-skinned fruit worn out by the sun's dull violence. Oranges limp and roll, as in a literal face or phantom. Roadkill, lie down. Trees pile up, exactly as do oranges, as down a granite bed schoolyard. Arms lined up in rows. You have to exit. Stay in your lines. And I'll just read a few, a few pieces from the graph from Claudia Rankin. Womb rhymes with plot. Yeah, so good. <laughs> um, so the, this new project is also kind of obsessed with relations and lack of relations between between individuals. I rented the opening only as far as the adjacent walls. This was corporeally true. L.A. was green like smoke, cranking big bolts of energy with actual smoke, welding its lines shut. Still, there's the way you make S's on paper and the way I make S's on paper. Apparently, ease is tough to deliver. Like when you commented on the earnings, and that hurt my feelings. A big bracelet is a big pain, Dottie says. I know everything I need. 
to write alongside, wait for the next adjective, wait for the next line, be not necessarily headed toward disaster, not necessarily forward thinking or rained down or stripped clean or subject to a heavy infection, not holding out for objects, more drawing lines around the feeling like sugar, chalk white and infuriating. Absent all that, to say the room became infected with color disturbs the logic of sight sense, but you knew that once you tore your retina and got charged with error. There's mint on the tongue, but that taste isn't written down anywhere. Ceramic chip in the finger, glare coming off the Lucite waiting room at the Hollywood walk-in clinic, snip, snip. That is not a moment sailing toward the future. It's not on paper lining a coffee table or scratched in ink or charged or embedded in fiber or even just starting to be a machine. And couldn't, no matter how you tried, really be a machine. Her head is filled with machines, one larger machine locked into her eyes as they rotate and refocus. The machine quits trying to be agency and starts to be machine, Frank says. This joint is also made from bone, the machine desirous of being a machine, made of words again, something else budding out from under that skin, like Yodorowsky's flower, or your eyes like a phoropter, and then the form broke. Pinned approval to your cubicle walls conjure the notion of a body to make another person or a body to make itself, a body to eat itself from inside, a body for drawing, for example, for moving in and out, curtains of whole bodies covering each other and the earth. It's writhing all the time, so you might as well structure the line differently. Birds moaning in Hollywood forever. A good day to be an amateur urologist when all the charts and lines are purely spectral, not like speculation, which is thinking that happens in two lines, non-animal, non-bone, non-blood, non-skin, then making scratches in a plate. Remember Brooklyn, Natira, Sophia, Camilla, Isabella, Olivia, Sybil, Leia, Carmenta, Isata, Sylvia, Maya, Darren, Volva on a table. A museum is a good place to collect names. On my powers of manifestation, I wished that winter would never end, and then it didn't ever end. So I wished that the eminent scholar would leave the room, and then the eminent scholar did leave the room. And then I could see that my powers of manifestation were great. So I wished that I would have the wished for thing, and people turned a bit embarrassed away from me, but I could feel their acquiescence to my powers of manifestation. So I wished for this, just to get through another one, to get through this more one, to get this done, just to get done with this one, just to arrange this one into position, just an idea of the other one, wait to get through this one, to hold that one, to remain in the bathtub all night, just this one more and once more, wait, and we can all be behind it together. Across the page, eyeglass is a form of medicine from late menstrual to early ovulation. It's easier to say the thing unless it isn't. One and one and two and seven and seven and the face empties. Timing is participatory. Timing is actual, whereas other actions are diaphanous. To time is to wait, to see is to make virtual, and to make virtual is to align body with signal, to count moons counterclockwise. Either you get the book or you get the concept. You get the chart or the seam ripper. Both are forms of policing, a feeling that's right. I am like an idea. To hold the book gutted and all the language fallen out. What are the two swords again, Mara? What's the feather a sign of, Mara? Dreaming awake at night. Ugh, that's a lot of sexuality. Turn off the recording. 
Ice on the face, hoping for rabbit, only get squirrel. Hoping for snow, only ice. On the metal bed frame, this head upon this pillow. How tart this nurse, how planetary this physiology. Doubting comes first, fall at the finish. A quite fearful muscle, as in water. Cramp, no cramp. Cramp, no body. Fear, awry. Perceptible cunt, may I log onto this terminal while we wait, clots, smear, bye-bye dancer, purple scarf sandwich maker, clutch of cells, each with its own discrete corridors. I've got it right here in my pocket, draped in muscle, this story, blank. They were listening, just not anymore. Painfully full or just full. A, green a huge greenhouse notes God in the sky. Shallow fe water features define the want. How old a cell that descends. Two big bleeds, then one small matted hair above the clots, a little slit to clutch the fingers, fingers sliding inside and opening wide, breath above breath, expanse, lungs, and heart, as one goes for breast and the other goes for breast, alive, tender, biting, fingers in rhythm, held between bones, a locking sensation, toward, <coughs> not friend, closer, my close part, and when she runs it up, my steam. First one passage and then another, strewn with rotted red leaves. Bring another concern into this analogy. A true red, dead ends, just a tad weepy at the injection site. Because the future is red like clay and reddening more by the hour, don't canonize, watch blood wash into the needle. A drained muscle is an empty form. It would be a relief then for a cell, iron out the pulse. The Leviathan is an artificial man. Unplug the diamond, undiamond the diamond, sharp and affect, appropriate to the office. I, a surprise, don't come into my space. Oh, don't come into my space. Oh, don't come in my space. Bastion, belly. Of course, it's not my space, but don't come into that space. If you licked at the lake or the shore or the mud or the border, the fine hair on the neck, the extra suitcase, etc., in the female form, the writing comes from what femaleness? Thanks so much. Wow.